if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Ephesians. Ephesians is a, a New Testament letter in the Bible. Uh, we began uh, preaching through it just last week, so if you're just now joining us, uh, you're here just in time. Um, we have been working uh, through a number of books. In fact, that's what we do here at Mosaic Church is we preach the Bible. Um, and so uh, we recently finished a series in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and now we're working through the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, if you don't, that's okay. We'll have the words up. They're already up on the screen for you today. Um, we're looking at Ephesians 1. Sometimes I wonder as a pastor... Um, if I have too much time on my hands, I mean, don't get me wrong, we do work more than one day a week. We do, I promise. But sometimes I wonder if the questions I ask are just those lofty, you know, right, uh, you know, this, the, the armchair theologian type of questions. One of the questions sometimes I ask myself, and I was asking myself time and time again as I looked at this passage uh, this week as I prepared to open God's Word, was, have you ever wondered what God was thinking about before creation existed? Okay, so, so what we believe about the Bible is that God has always existed. He's the only one who is not created, okay? So God has always existed, and so this question of what was that like? You know, you, you get into these thoughts and, and at some point your mind bursts and you realize, okay, I'm just a man and I'll never fully understand it. But there's other times when you get an opportunity to glimpse into God's mind, to almost see and to feel and, and to think what he's thinking because he's given that to us in his word. Uh, today's passage lets us get into God's mind before creation ever existed. It's kind of it's creepy and it's kind of cool at the same time. And so we, we tr tread very gently and very humbly on this passage today, but God has given it to us. And so I think if you're like me, you're going to be surprised as to what was on God's mind before anything ever existed. And so let's look today at Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading... Again, just three verses. It's a, a shorter passage. Um, I promise we're going to get through this book in less than five years. It's not a, we're, we're not going to go this slow. We'll start taking some big chunks. But this morning, we're going to give our attention to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, going down through verse 6. So let's, let's give our attention to the word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of the living God. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Pray with me. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come to you again humbly. Um, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to begin to decipher who you are. Lord, you've made it very plain in the words of Scripture. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that through me, that you would help me to communicate plainly your word to your people, so that we might walk away from it changed. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, sometimes from the pulpit, you get insights into my life that I'm a little hesitant to share, and, and some of those insights have to do with my TV habits. Uh, I know you all watch silly reality TV shows, so I feel no guilt in sharing my credible stories of reality TV showing, but one of the TV shows that I have enjoyed, I haven't watched it lately, but I, I got into a bit of a Netflix binge with this show was Pawn Stars. Uh, I, sorry for the faux pas, I did not name the show, but Pawn Stars, is a, it just chronicles the, the events that happen in a local pawn shop on the, on the Las Vegas Strip. Some of you have seen it. Maybe not. Okay, a couple of you have, so I feel like I'm in good company. So Pawn Stars, it, it shows these interactions between the pawn shop owners and people that bring in these prized possessions in order to, to sell them or to pawn them off to this shop. And there are some, some magnificent things that come through, through this store. I mean, vintage toys and, and, and military relics from all different generations and, and autographs and you know, Les Paul guitars and all kinds of things come through this store. And I love that in this show, at least what they show us on TV, there are typically two types of people that are bringing their stuff in. There's the first person who comes in thinking they have the greatest thing ever. They come in and they lay it on the glass, you know, showcase counter to, for this pawn uh, um, shop guy to assess and evaluate. And they tell them all about it and they tell them the history of it. And then the, the owner to ask them, he says, okay, what do you want for it? And so he's asking for the price tag, and that's where the negotiation begins. And, and these type of people have a very high price tag on there, $50,000 or something outrageous. There's those people. The second type of people that come into this store is somebody who comes in with something, and they think they might have something. They're not too incredibly sure about it, but they come and they lay it on the, the glass counter and he says, okay, what do you have here? And they kind of explain it. It sounds like they, they kind of know about it a little bit. And he asks them the same question and he says, you know, what do you want for it? And they put a very modest price tag on it. They're very humble about what they have. They put this price tag on it. And in both scenarios, typically, sometimes the owner knows enough about the product where he can negotiate and, and kind of know what's before the everybody. But in most of these scenarios, what the owner will do is he'll say, okay, well, let's call in an expert. Let's call in somebody who specializes in this item so we can, we can begin the, negotiation, the negotiating process. And so usually in the instance of the person who has overpriced their piece, they've come in and they bring in the specialists and they, you know, they usually say, well, yeah, this is nice or this is a fraud or, and it, the price always goes down. And so you're just like, oh man, I got, you know, I got crushed. But the second, the second person is always the best. It's that, that person that comes in with that, that humble price tag and the expert tells them, wow, you've got something. You've got something here. Like this is something. And the price tag just jumps astronomically. It's like off the charts. And at that point, you know, the, the shop owner regrets bringing in the expert and, and they begin the negotiation process. Uh, but, but the point is the determining factor in the value and the worth of the item is the professional specialist or the expert. Now, here's, here's my point. Uh, I, I'm not the expert in this analogy. That's, that's not where I'm headed. I, I am not going to expound on this in a way that, that's saying I'm the expert on this. Actually, the Bible is. And so we are going to deal with actually kind of a touchy subject today. Uh, I don't know if you're real sensitive um, to food textures, but if, if you've ever been around, if you're a texture person, there's certain things that just don't 
you just don't like, right? Like, I don't know, sushi or raw oysters. You know, some people just, I love both of those. But, but there's something about the texture of them that just doesn't sit right with you. Well, we're going to kind of dabble into a text that, that has that response for some people today. The Bible is the determining factor for the worth of what we're about to talk about today. Um, we uh, today are primarily going to be talking about what it means to be blessed by God. Uh, the, the nature of the passage in verses 3 and down, and in fact, th verse 3 alone uses the word blessed in varying forms three different times. And so it shows us that th this is the headliner for the passage. What does it mean to be blessed? Now, before we look at what the blessings are and how they can be yours today, I want you to get the big idea that I'm trying to communicate to you today, and it's this. I want you to walk away from this passage knowing this, that all blessings are yours because all your curses were Christ's. So all of the blessings that we're going to talk about today are yours because all of your curses were Christ. Let's Let's kind of, um, let's, let's just dig into this. So here's how I want to address the passage. Um, if you've been around my preaching, uh, I, I kind of do an outline thing, and so I, I like you to track. Uh, today what we're going to do, I'm going to ask some questions of the passage, questions that I, that I hope maybe are in the back of your mind, and then we're going to answer them from the text. So the questions are, are very simple. First, we're going to ask, what are the blessings? Secondly, we're going to ask, how do you get the blessings and then thirdly, we're going to ask, what's the purpose of the blessings? So first, let's consider what are the blessings. Um, if you're familiar with Ephesians, you may already know this, um, but verses 3 down through 14 is one long sentence. Okay, in the Greek, which Paul's writing in, there is no punctuation, all right? There's different phrases and clauses to, to frame a sentence. And this long section is one big burst of praise from Paul at the beginning of Ephesians. And so he goes into this lengthy sentence. In fact, it's, it's 202 words in, in the Greek that Paul would have been writing in. And there's a, a little helpful kind of framework that, that most, most commentators have picked on, and, and I'm just going to borrow from. And the framework is this. Verse 3 tells us that in Christ you have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, okay? So all of the blessings. And then he's going to elaborate on exactly what those blessings are. And the framework sounds something like this. It sounds like verses 4 through 6 is the blessings that God the Father gives to us. In verses 7 down through 12, it sounds like the blessings that God the Son gives to us. And then in verses 13 and 14, it's God the Spirit. So, so uh, if you're new to Christianity, you know, that, that might have kind of, what is he talking about? Here's, here's what we believe. The Bible tells us that God, there is only one God. And that God has shown himself in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of those have unique functions. They are unique persons, but they are one God. And so today we're going to look at just the role of the Father, now, obviously, the work of the Son and the Spirit, they all, they all intertwine on some levels. But today, in verses 3 to 6, we are going to examine what the blessings are. Here's where that food texture problem is going to come in for you. Here's my plan. I'm going to tell you the two blessings, okay? I'm going to tell you the two blessings, and I'm going to lay them out in all of their glory for you as the best, to the best of my ability. And then I'm going to step to the side 
and I'm gonna answer your objections to them to the best of my ability. This will not answer every question you have about this. This will not address every problem, but I hope that it'll begin to stir some thoughts for you. So what are the blessings? Here is the first blessing. The Father chose us to be holy and blameless. I had mentioned it at the kind of setting the tone for this that, that we were going to talk about what God was thinking about before he made anything. This is the answer. He was thinking about his people. The way that Ephesians presents itself is that God, before anything existed, before the, the, any of the galaxies, any of the stars, before the seas of, of the ocean or the land of the planets, before anything existed, he had his people in his mind. And the, the point of having that is what his people would be. And if you look at the passage, it's that they would be holy and blameless. That there would be this perfectly pure, this unstained, this without blemished bride for God. He chose us to be holy and blameless before anything ever happened. That's the first blessing. The second blessing is that the Father predestined us for adoption. So if you're catching what I'm saying here, the language of choosing and predestining, for some of you, rises the hairs on the back of your neck. Um, what you need to understand about the fullness of this second blessing that God has predestined us for adoption is the simple baseline truth that we're not all God's children. Now, I just crumbled some of your worldviews. Let me, let me sidestep that for a second. We are not all God's children in the, in the very specific way the Bible talks about it. So many of us have this perspective that, you know, God made everyone, right? He did, very true. And that God loves everyone. He does, very true, generally love everyone. But the way that the Bible speaks about our um, status as rebels actually tells us who we truly are. What I want you to do, if you have a Bible, you can turn a page. I want you to go to chapter 2 in Ephesians. We're not going to, this is not like sermon number 2. But in chapter 2 of Ephesians, it actually describes what kind of children we are by nature. At the end of verse 2, Paul tells us that we are sons of disobedience. And then he goes on at the end of verse 3 to call us by nature children of wrath. Now, that is not popular language. I realize I have just offended at least 60% of you. Um, but, but I'm okay with that because it's hidden in the language and the promise going back to chapter 1 of what God has promised to bless us with, namely adoption. Now, for those of you that don't know me, uh, we have two adopted children. Um, this isn't like a secret. Uh, they have my eyes, but we don't really look the same. Um, so... <laughs> That was an inside joke. I'm sorry. We, we, have, we have adopted transracially, and so our children, they know they're adopted. Um, but, but in our two adoptions, that was a terrible joke. My wife is going to tell me about that later. In our first adoption with Jaden, they were both adopted as infants. In our first adoption with Jaden, when we got news about Jaden, um, the Lord was going to bring him to our home, we were traveling. We were on the road. 
And we had told the adoption agency that we were open, obviously, to transracial adoptions, and we were, we were really widely open on a number of things. So they told us about Jaden. And so we were on the road, and this was pre-smartphone. Like, it was 2010. I don't know why we didn't have a smartphone yet, but we didn't have smartphones. And I vividly remember having the conversation with the agency that said, we have a picture of your son. Like, would you like to see him? And I just thought, yes. And as we were driving, we were looking for a Starbucks so we could go get internet and get on our computers and look at this picture. And it, and it began to well up in me. The, uh, th I mean, I was becoming fully aware that I thought that if I didn't see that picture, that I would have a hard time loving Jaden. There was something, and I think it was probably in the back of my mind, but it came to the forefront of my mind as we're pursuing this adoption in very real terms, that if I didn't see what my son looked like, that I couldn't love him. And, and, you know, we got to the Starbucks, and we saw the picture, and he was beautiful, and it was relief, and it was like, okay, of course, this is going to be great and wonderful. For our second adoption, Micah, uh, it was not the same case. Um, I did not feel compelled as though I had to see him before I could love him. And so that, that flowed out of a heart that was already changed by adoption. I, I had already known, Jaden had been in our family for two years, and so I'd already known what it meant to love someone that didn't, you know, look like me or come from my genes or whatever. And, and my, my point is this, when we think about truths like being adopted before God did anything, being predestined to be in his family, I think here's what we think, that we think God needs to see a picture of us first so that he can then love us. And so many of us operate as pragmatically like that, like as though we try to kind of backpedal the hard, hardness of this truth that, that God could love us before he made anything without even seeing us. And we, we play that off by saying, well, he's seeing what I'm doing now, and that's, that's why he loved me to begin with. The Bible actually teaches the exact opposite truth. God did see a picture of us before he adopted of us. And do you know what he saw? He saw our filth. And he saw our rebellion. And he saw our inclination to run from him in every given opportunity. And what did he do? Everything in his power to bring those kind of people into his family. See, the, the, the blessing of adoption by God is that God wants messy people in his family. He does. And the objections that now, I've laid this out. So the blessings are that he chose us before he did every, anything. And then he predestined us to be in his family in spite of who we would be. Here are the objections, at least I think common ones that you might be asking yourself that I want to briefly just attempt to address. The first question is this. How is that fair? The question of fairness, that, that if God was fair, wouldn't he give everyone an equal opportunity to believe? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, fairness requires the responsibility for, for, uh, to be saved. But the, the answer is, is no, because fair, fairness also requires that nobody be saved. In other words, let me put it like this. That if fairness were the uh, baseline for God's choosing us, the reality is he wouldn't choose any of us. And so the Bible shows us that if fairness is what we want, judgment is all we will get. 
And so playing the fairness card, I, I love this. Our oldest son right now, he's, he's totally into fairness. Like every other thing is, that's not fair, dad. And, and my favorite response is, well, son, life is not fair. You know, I mean, I, I, just, I just, I tell him that. And so the, the objection that it's not fair is, is that you don't know what you're really asking for when you're asking for fairness from God. Instead, a, a biblically informed objection that God would choose to save people would be the reverse question. God, why would you save any of us? That's the response to that objection. A second objection that I think is very prevalent, particularly in our Western American mindset, is this question. Well, what about our free will? If God chose to save some people before he had created anything, Apart from their willing choice of him, doesn't that just make us a bunch of puppets? If God knows who will be saved, where is our free will? And here's what is very important for you to understand, and that is how we define free will. I'll simply give this definition for you. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. Free will simply means this, that we are able to choose what we want to choose. We are able to choose what we want to choose. That's, in its essence, what it means to have free will. We are not forced to choose anything that we don't want to. We make choices according to who we are. Let me provide this illustration. If I took a tiger, a Bengal tiger from the wild, and I laid in front of him a bowl of oatmeal, as wonderful as it is, loaded with all of the goodies, and I took to him a red, luscious ribeye, and I laid that down day after day, where do you think he's going to go to eat? He's going to eat that ribeye every single time. Now, did we make him choose that ribeye? Well, no. It's his nature. He's eating according to his nature. He's going to what he wants the same thing is true of us. And your response is this. Well, I did choose God. I made the conscious decision to turn from my sin and to trust in Jesus. And I would simply say this. Yes, you chose God, but only because he chose you. And so it's not the other way around. So those are the blessings, okay? God chose us to be holy and blameless. God predestined us to be in his family through adoption. And so the question really that's more prevalent than perhaps the theological armchair stuff is how do you get those blessings? So let's look at how you get those blessings in verse 5. I think if you took a survey, kind of a swath of the people around you, even in this room, and particularly outside of these walls, and you asked the question, how can I be blessed by God? And not only be blessed by God, but also keep that blessing. I think you'll hear answers that sound something like this. Well, I need to be a good person and do the right thing. So there's this level of morality that, that, that people think earn God's blessing. Or it might sound like uh, I need to try my best and, and do what God wants, something along those lines. Perhaps if you ran into a, a church-going Christian like we are uh, a lot of today, you may hear something like, well, I need to obey God's love or God's law. I need to obey God's love, law. Or another one, I think this is really popular right now, is how do you get God's blessing? Well, I need to just love God and love people. 
Right? We quote what Jesus said, how he summarized the law. Well, just love God and love people. That's, that's how you get God's blessing. In other words, the response to the question that I'm asking, how do you get the blessings, is typically some mild form of religion. Religion being loosely defined as efforts that are made by us in order to get God's attention and to keep it. Religion is just that. It's human effort that we think we must do, not only to get God's attention initially, hey, God, look at me, look what I'm doing, but also to keep it, God, bless me, look what I'm doing. Well, in order for us to understand the real answer to this question, we actually have to understand the storyline of this entire book. And the storyline of this entire book can be aptly summarized in the bad news and the good news. You see, the bad news of the Bible is this that we have lost God's blessing because of our rebellion. From our first parents forward, our constancy has been that of rebellion. We, again, as Ephesians 2 has told us, are by nature children of wrath. We are sons of disobedience. We are tigers that love ribeyes, ribeyes being sin in that illustration. We love it. We crave it. We are born like that. And the problem of rebellion is that we've lost God's blessing. That in the Bible, it tells us that the reason that we experience curses, curses being all around us, is because of our rebellion. And so we see uh, curses in, in just the normal things of life, right? We see curses in, in why our food spoils. We see curses in why our cars break down. We see curses in why we can't keep jobs, why it's hard to work. We see curses in our relationships, Right? There are curses all around us and within us, and we cannot escape it. When we are left to ourselves, we are left surrounded by curse after curse after curse. That's the bad news of the Bible. But the good news of the Bible is that God's blessing has come back to us in spite of us. You see, the good news of the Bible is that God did not abandon us that God did not leave us in our rebellion, but rather he came to us. You see, what we believe is that, that Jesus is the fullness of God who became a man. And so Jesus, not created, fully God, the eternal one, took on flesh. And why did he do that? So that he could know your experience. Jesus fully knows what it means to be surrounded by curses. Jesus knows in its fullness what it means to be tempted to sin. Jesus knows what it means to, be, uh, to, to long for rebellion, but the only difference between Jesus and every other human being who has ever lived is that he did not falter. He was without sin. And so because he was just that, what did he deserve? Well, he deserved all of God's blessings. He deserved for God to pour out all praise and blessing to him. But instead, Christ went and he took the curse for us. That passage that we read in Galatians for our confession or for our assurance of pardon today tells us that Christ redeemed us from the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, how do I get the blessings? Only because Christ took the curses. So to be clear, how do you get the blessings? By faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Believing in the meritorious, that is, the outworking of righteousness that Christ did for you. Believing that he fulfilled all of the laws in its fullness for you. Believing that his death atoned for your death. That he fully buried the wrath that was coming your way and he took it upon himself. And believing that his resurrection from the grave conquered all of your curse. That is how you get God's blessing. Believing in that as the means to securing God's blessing over your life is what it means to be a Christian. Verse 3 has told us that in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing, all of them. Everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to those who believe. How do you, how do you get the blessings? Faith alone in Christ alone. Well, let's look lastly at verse 6 and ask the question, what is the purpose of the blessings? Um, when Heather and I were in college, uh, we were in Phoenix at the time, and we purchased our first home. Uh, it was a little town home in the middle of Phoenix. We had no business buying a home. I don't know, we, we stumbled on a little bit of money and you know, we bought into the myth that you have to own a home. So we bought a home um, and we got to build it. We didn't build it. Somebody built it for us from scratch. And so it was a new build home. And it was about, a, from what I recall, like a six-month process. And if you've ever built a home from scratch, it's kind of a unique, fun experience. You know, you, it, it begins by, well, you giving them all your money and signing your life over. But after that, you begin to, you get to pick out some of the things in the inside. And then you get to, you know, see it kind of raised up from the dirt, to, uh, from nothing into your house. And Heather and I made a tradition of every Sunday afternoon, We'd go to church, we'd go to lunch, and then we would go to the house and we would just see where it's at. And so we would go and we would plod through the mud and all the, you know, nails and everything just to go see the status of our house. And, and as it got closer and closer to it, it became obviously more and more real to us that, that we were actually going to get this house. And, uh, you know, at the early stages, the immediate design or the immediate intention of ours was that we would just have a, a house, right? Something to live in and to, to do life in and all of that kind of stuff. It's just very bare bones, just kind of very minimalist. But as, as things got closer and you start thinking about living in it, you, you start realizing this is more than a house, right? This is, this is a home where our marriage will be nurtured. You know, we, I think we thought maybe we would live there forever. I don't know. Your first home, you think, oh, we're going to raise our kids here or whatever. So you begin to think about these ultimate plans, right? The ultimate design is, is not just the, the framework. It's not just the, the sheetrock and the nails and all that stuff. It's, it's the home. It's what we're what we're trying to build. As Christians, I think one of the things that we do when we hear about blessings like this is we think that the immediate design of salvation, in other words, what it means to be in Christ, you know, to be rescued from our sin and to be given new life and forgiveness and grace and peace, all those things that we talk about, we think that that's the ultimate and final design. Like God made everything so he could just save us. Verse 6 actually tells us something different. It gives us a different narrative. Verse 6 tells us, I just want to read it again. I'm going to read the end of verse 5 and then uh, verse 6. It says, it's through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The ultimate design for all things is the glory of God. It is ultimately all things 
were to make God the most glorious being ever. It's why he made us, it's why he redeemed us, and it's ultimately why all things will be made new so that God would be glorious. Um, we are a, um, what's, some people use the language of a confessional church. I, I don't really like to use jargon like that, but, but being a confessional church means that we hold to a confession of faith. In other words, we believe the Bible is supreme, right? This is the word of the living God. And, and in order for us to understand that, there must be some level of interpretation, right? You, you know, every, you know, this is why we have denominations, you know, as ugly as they may seem to you, there must be an interpretation of this. And so under the Bible for us in, in, in our church is, is a confession of faith. And it's, it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can read it if, if you're interested in those kinds of things. But, but one, of the, one of the questions, it's in, it's in the shorter catechism. You know, we use those question and answers. The very first question in our confession of faith, some of you know it and you're just itching for me to get it out. Others of you don't. And so just bear with the rest of us. Um, the first question asks this. What is the chief end of man? It's kind of archaic language. In other words, it's asking the question, what is the whole ultimate design? What's the purpose? Why do we exist? And the answer is this, is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mosaic Church exists for that purpose. As we were planting this church and, you know, you, you think through all of these things that, you know, a church can be and who God wants us to be in a city, and there's lots of them. We weren't that really creative in who we wanted to be. If, if you go to our website, it says that we exist to bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. That's, that's why we exist. If you're here today and that language, and, and maybe even a teaching like this is new to you. I am glad you're here, first of all, but I, I want you to explore that in your own life. What does it mean to actually enjoy God? Is, I mean, are those two just dichotomous terms? Like, how could you, you know, God has been this thing to you or this object or maybe this, this thing of, of study, you know, this person of study, and, and now you're telling me to enjoy him? Those have been just distant ideas in your mind. I hope that looking at a passage like this can actually begin to marry those ideas. That before time began, God had you on his mind. Like you, not just us, not just the church at large, like you. And when that begins to sink in, you can begin to enjoy a God like that. It would be easy for us to walk away from today's passage and do a couple of things. One, we can kind of like the, the pawn shop scenario, we can underprice its value, right? We can kind of come in and it's kind of like, oh, this is the dark family secret. Yeah, you know, we believe God chose us and predestined us and seems a little malicious and so we're not really gonna talk about it. Or we can uphold it in all of its beauty and rejoice that a God like that could love a people like us. I think there are a variety of responses that I wanna close in addressing. I think there's a few responses to a passage like this. I, I think one of the responses can be that of objections. It could be that of, of denial or confusion or why would God be like this? And, and if that's you today, again, I'm, I'm glad you're here. 
um, I would invite you to continue to come because this is the tip of the iceberg. This is the, the, just the 10% of what we see in the rest of Ephesians. So there might be objections. Uh, another response is, is that of pride. Um, the, the pride that comes out in a passage like this, here's, here's your response. You knew this passage was coming, right? You'd read it all week. You'd kind of been like, oh, Adam's going to talk about those things. I can't wait. I will not miss church for this sermon. In fact, if this is you, you are the type of person that if you haven't heard a, a doctrinally dif a difficult sermon in a while, you feel a little malnourished, right? You feel like you've been eating can cotton candy all the time. In fact, if this is you, you'll walk out here and say, well, he, that was a pretty good sermon on it, but I probably could have preached a better one. <laughs> if that's you, you might have a pride issue. Um, you might have a theological and doctrinal gr grid that is blinding you. Now listen, I love doctrine and I love theology. I do. But it becomes prideful when our response is that. Another final response that, uh, that I think might be happening right now is one of bewilderment. In other words, you have perhaps heard about teachings like this. Maybe you've been to sermons where pastors danced around them a little bit and did some gymnastics with them. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, you've, you know them and so you just kind of hide your he head in the sand. You just don't want to deal with it. I get that. That's really a comfortable spot to be. And sometimes I want to join you there. But I hope that this has whet your appetite for more. I hope that this has not been a, a repelling sermon, but it has been compelling that you would want to know a God like this. You see, God sets these blessings in the front of this letter to evoke, in my mind, two responses from us today, and here's how I'll close. I think this text wants us to respond with humility and with hopefulness. I think a text like this requires us to let God be God. And you know what? That's a good place to be. For us to delve into the mind of God, he's given it to us, let's talk about it, let's rejoice in it, but at the same time, let's stop trying to be God and to figure it all out. We don't have to do that. The second response that I hope it evokes in you is one of hopefulness. Can we find hope in the God that never lets anything out of his grip? In other words, from before he made anything at all to when he'll bring everything to a culminating end to make all things new, not a single thing has gone astray. Nothing that God and his redeeming purposes has used every instance of evil to bring it about for the good of his people, that God is preparing for his people the wedding of all weddings, where he will do what he set out to do from his beginning, namely to make us holy and blameless before him. Humility and hopefulness. I think that's what we need today, and I pray that's what God will give us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's been a heavy week for some of us for different varying reasons. And uh, Lord, it's been a heavy um, week of preparation and a difficult text for me. And so Lord, I pray that you would bless it, um, that you would help us to look at what it truly means to be blessed by you, that we would move beyond the earthly things that we so often are certainly grateful for, but we make ultimate uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that your plan and your purpose and your design for all things to fall under the banner of your glory 
um, is for our good. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in our hearts, that you would evoke humility in us, and that you would give us great hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.